The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Thank you, Taryn. How's the sound? Okay. <clears throat> Taryn is um, pretty funny to wash dishes with on a one-month retreat as well. There were a few times where we were laughing uncontrollably in the dining room, but we tried to be quiet about it. <laughs> as you uh, might know, Gil is teaching a retreat at IRC, and uh, when he asked me if I would give the talk on a Monday night, he also gave me the topic, which made it a little easy, and the topic is communal living. And so I assume that he gave me this topic because I've been living in community for more than 50 years. And um, actually, it was very good for me to think about it in terms of the Dharma. It's like heightened my sensitivity. I noticed that last night we were having a conversation, and this morning a conversation, and I'm kind of going through the whole um, thing on how the Dharma might help us be present to one another in our communal living. Our experience as um, Catholic nuns is that we have a lifetime commitment to one another, but we change the people we're living with depending on our work and where we're living. And so it's kind of a mix of uh, continuity and innovation all the time. So right now I'm living in Burlingame in Mercy Convent with 23 other Sisters of Mercy. And uh, the group is so big that we've divided into three littler groups and we have dinner together and say evening prayer together in the smaller groups. So we have all kinds of, of ways to experience this. I think of uh, what is communal living and I remember going to the San Francisco City Planning Commission once for uh, remodeling a building and they said communal living is a group of unrelated adults living together. And that describes us pretty well. And some of you might have an experience of that at some time. I think some of the experiences can also be applied to a family situation or a work group or a social group that's stable over many years and you really get to know one another. And maybe even some relationships in our sangha are relevant to communal living, even though, strictly speaking, they don't satisfy that definition. When I thought about this, the first thing that occurred to me is the diversity of people who come together. Uh, we aren't from the same family, necessarily culture, even race, ages. We have a lot of diversity. And... We value diversity, but at the same time, as you know, it can be a real challenge to us um, in daily living, a real stretch. And so I'm grateful that our Buddhist practice guides us in our living together. And I'm thinking especially about the precepts and the Eightfold Path and taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So I, I thought oh, it would be really fun to describe a cast of characters. And I immediately abandoned the idea of going through the 23 people with whom I live because <laughs> I'd be putting them in boxes and I'd be giving them a solid identity and it wouldn't be fair to them and it would be terrible for my practice and so I'm not going to do that. And so I went to um, saying, I know, I'll use the nine personality types of the Enneagram 
because it's been studied by a lot of people. It comes out of a wisdom tradition many centuries ago. It's really been updated in the late uh, 20th century, and I'm familiar with it. In our community, we have used the Enneagram and also the Myers-Briggs personality inventory to try to help understand one another and to um, live together in a very positive way. So the Enneagram has nine types. It means point of nine, and they go in a circle. And I'm going to go through the world's fastest view of the Enneagram. And I'm quoting from a book uh, written by the grandniece of one of the sisters that I live with. And she just finished last night a three-day workshop on the Enneagram in Palo Alto. So maybe if you know about it, you'll recognize yourself, or maybe you don't know about it and say, oh, I'm kind of like that, or maybe you'll pigeonhole somebody that you know. And I really have to caution against that because these are not solid identities that we want to put on and assume the rest of our lives. So the typical way is you start with type nine and work down to one. Okay, the type nines. The type nines are adaptable and likable, and they're easygoing. They specialize in detecting tension and finding ways to mediate and diffuse conflict. They're genuinely caring and unselfish. However, they can over-adjust to others and then have a hard time registering their own desires and asserting their own agendas. Type 8. Now, the 8s take the most direct route to getting what they need. 8s tend to be very concerned with justice and protective of the oppressed and the needy. They can be fair and just and authoritative. They can be intense and fun-loving, but they may also be overbearing, impatient, and intolerant of frustration. Type 7. The sevens are typically playful, optimistic, inventive, adventurous, fun-loving, and imaginative. Sevens have difficulty in relationships when called on to confront problems and deal with conflict. Their dislike of routine can lead them to be distracted, irresponsible, and noncommittal in long-term projects. Type six. This archetype scans for danger in a scary world and defensively manages fear and anxiety through fight, flight, or friends. Sixes can be extremely loyal and steadfast friends to those they trust. However, they can get stuck in doubt, endless questioning, and over-analysis. Type five. Fives withdraw into thinking as a way of taking refuge in the inner world. This archetype may need to have time alone to rest or recharge away from the prying eyes and emotional needs of others. However, fives can isolate themselves from others, feel inhibited in relationships, and be detached and withdrawn in social situations. 
type four. Fours experience an inner sense of lack. The natural strengths of fours include their large capacity for emotional sensitivity and depth, and their feel for aesthetics and creativity. Fours can support others with great care, respect, and sensitivity. However, they can become attached to their feelings in a way that can prevent them from thinking objectively or taking action. Type three. The threes adopt a personality as an external public face in order to survive in the world. They put on a good face as a means of both protection and a marketing effort. Threes are effective doers who get a lot done and make it look easy. However, they exhaust themselves by working too hard and they lose sight of who they really are apart from the persona they have adopted to achieve their goals. Type two. Twos seek to please others as a way to evoke affection. The natural strengths of type twos include their genuine ability to listen to others, emphasize with, empathize with their feelings, and meet their needs. They will often go to great lengths to take care of and support their loved ones. But at times they may get in their own way by overdoing their focus on shape-shifting to please others. Type one. Ones seek to be good and do the right thing to satisfy an urgent need to be virtuous and responsible and to avoid fault and blame. Type one individuals are reliable, responsible, honest, well-intentioned, conscientious, and hardworking. However, rigidity, criticism, and continuous judgment are characteristic of this type, just as they have a belief in justice, fairness, and good order. When I was going through a 480-page book in order to take out three sentences about each type, I was thinking specifically of individuals with whom I live. I live with every one of these types right now, and in the past I've done that. And if you've done any work with personality types, you might be able to relate to that. And I'm just really amazed at how we live together with appreciation and kindness. Every once in a while we miss but we've done enough of our work communally and individually that we recover pretty quickly and we support one another. We pretty much know each person's patterns and Enneagram number, and we talk about that. We need to take seriously the diversity each person brings to the group. That's what I really reinforced when I was looking at this. It's really important to respect that and not to assume that everybody's like me. I like Philip Moffat's um, image. He says, we can renounce being the star of our own movie. And sometimes when we live with other people and work closely with other people over a long time, we can get the feeling, oh, I am playing a bit part in someone else's movie here. 
And in a way, that's a relief because we don't have to be the star all the time. And we also have to be aware, oh, I do this because I'm a four. Well, no, we're called a pattern of a four because we do this. It's backwards, it's the other way. And we have choices. We don't have unlimited choices, but each of us can choose what we say and what we do. And our practice guides us in making those choices. So that's one version of the cast of characters. Do you recognize yourself or anybody you know? Be careful. Boxes, identities. So then I looked for snippets of teachings that apply to communal living. One of my favorites is from Bhante Gudaratana in Mindfulness in Plain English. And he wrote, quote, don't condemn yourself for having human flaws and failings. Learn to see all the phenomena in the mind as being perfectly natural and understandable, end quote. And I found that kind of remarkable because it reminds us we're shaped by early childhood experiences, by our conditioning, by our culture, by all the choices that we've made from the beginning of time until now. And so considering where we're coming from, everything that arises in our mind is natural and understandable. And that's also true of everyone else with whom we live and work. When someone comes up with something that we think is strange, it's nice to remember, oh, it's natural and understandable and it kind of takes the edge off of hastening to judgment or something like that. One of the things I'm learning lately that's really major is it's really dangerous for me to presume to know what someone else is thinking or feeling or why someone did something or what they should do. Sometimes in a group, someone will ask, well, why did someone else do that? And it's like a big red flag. We don't know why someone else did that. Heaven, sometimes we don't know why we did that. And so it's important to remember that there's a lot we don't know about the other person. And when my mental process goes that way, I try to remember it is just full of assumptions and beliefs and maybe some expectations and probably a very large dose of projections. It's something I experience, but I don't own it. And so I see it in someone else and I pretend it's out there and it's really in here. It's totally subjective and unreliable. And it's better to simply be attentive and listen. And Pema Chodron says, listen and understand. I love that. I have to give an example of, of reacting strongly to something someone else did. A couple of months ago, um, a sister who lives in Southern California came and stayed with us for a month. And when she was ready to go, she had a flight to go home. She asked another sister to clean up her room because her back hurt and she needed to lie down. Now, the sister she asked resented it. And then she talked to another sister about it and told her, and that nun said, don't do it. So there's the dilemma. What's really funny about this is I was not in the conversation at all. I never saw the room. The third one is the person who talked to me about it. And I went into orbit. So I'm sitting quietly. This room didn't get really messy all at once. It's been messy for a month. You could have cleaned it up every day. 
what are you doing with food in your room? You didn't eat it. Food belongs in the dining room. I went on and on. Fortunately, it was just in my mind. And I said, Judy, stop this. Just stop it. So, okay, I stopped it. Two seconds later, back it comes, you know. And it's not our style to have really messy bedrooms in the convent. So I went on and on. Okay, so finally I stopped obsessing about it. Four or five days later, I was sitting quietly meditating, and I wasn't thinking about it at all. And the thought arose, I trashed the nun. And that is a lot worse than having a messy room. I'm the same. And all my irritation and self-righteousness and arrogance just went away. So I was relieved. I didn't say anything to her or anybody else because I didn't have to go make amends. And I thought, I didn't harm myself either because I learned from it. This was vivid. So I love it. So I'm more careful now. I picked up someone else's anger. I ran with it. I multiplied it ten times. And after five days, I saw what I was doing and it flew away. May the Dharma guide us in our daily lives. There's um, Ramdas sends out, I'm sure his followers sends out um, little things a couple of times a week by email. Very recently there was one that I really liked on this topic. Ram Das said, from a personality point of view, you develop judgment. But from the soul's point of view, you develop appreciation. This shift from judging to appreciating, to appreciating yourself and what your karmic predicament is, and who other beings are with their own karma, brings everything into a simple, loving awareness. And this simple, loving awareness can evolve in our own practice. Now, sometimes, every once in a while, we might experience problems uh, relating to people with whom we live, And when we see it this way, we want to fix the problems. And often that means changing the other person, which of course doesn't work. And in her book, uh, Pema Chodron writes, When Things Fall Apart is the name of her book, she addresses how we can view problems. Quote, Generally speaking, we regard discomfort in any form as bad news. But for practitioners... Feelings like disappointment, (coughs) embarrassment, irritation, resentment, anger, jealousy, and fear, instead of being bad news, are actually very clear moments that teach us where it is that we're holding back. They're like messengers that show us with terrifying clarity exactly where we're stuck. This very moment is the perfect teacher, and lucky for us, it's with us wherever we are. End quote. Pema Chodron, in another book, described her own experience. Quote, when I first came to uh, Gampo Abbey, I thought of myself as a likable, flexible, open-hearted, open-minded person. Part of that was true. But there was another part that wasn't. For one thing, I was a terrible director. The other residents felt disempowered by me. 
they pointed out my shortcomings. But I couldn't hear what they were saying because my fixed identity was so strong. Every time new people came to live at the Abbey, I got the same kind of negative feedback. But still, I didn't hear it. This went on for a few years. Then one day, as if they had all gotten together and staged an intervention, I finally heard what everyone had been telling me about how my behavior was affecting them. At last, the message got through. When I read that, I didn't know whether to be nervous or kind of encouraged that it took Pema Chodron several years to hear how she affected the people that she lived with. And I also found some good advice from Bhante G. He said, Differences do exist between people, but dwelling on them is a dangerous process. Unless carefully handled, it leads to egotism. Rather than noticing the differences between self and others, the meditator trains himself or herself to notice similarities. We become very understanding people as a result. We no longer get upset by the failings of others. We progress toward harmony with all life. And I think that harmony with all life sounds a lot like simple loving awareness. Well, what about having friends in the community? Pema Chodron observed, quote, when we like someone, it's generally because they make us feel good. They don't blow our trip, don't disturb our fixed identity. So we're buddies. When we don't like someone, they're not on our wavelength. So we don't want to hang out with them. And it's generally because they challenge our identity. Often we think of the people we don't like as our enemies. But in fact, they're all important to us. They're our greatest teachers, special messengers who show up just when we need them to point out our fixed identity. I was on a retreat at Mercy Center two weeks ago and the uh, priest leading the retreat is an Augustinian monk who lives in Philadelphia. And he happened to comment, when I joined the monastery, I found myself living with people that my parents used to warn me about. <laughs> and then a pithy saying from Pema Chodron, it isn't the content of our movie that needs our attention, it's the projector. <laughs> it isn't the current storyline that's the root of our pain, it's our propensity to be bothered in the first place. End quote. The first thing I picked up um, in thinking about this topic was Tom Jeff's book on refuge, because I wanted to know what does he say about refuge in the Sangha. It turns out in this little book he only has four pages on it, but I was very inspired and intrigued by them because he described the economy of gifts that traditionally exists between monks and nuns and the lay people who support them. The lay people provide material gifts. They give them daily food and robes and medicines and lodgings according to their means. And then the monastics teach out of compassion, offering the gifts of their full-time practice. 
And I like the fact that the full-time practice, Tan Jeff said, they, monastics really specialize in practice. That's all they do. And Tan Jeff said that the economy of gifts comes from the heart, something totally voluntary. Daily contact, this is a quote, with lay donors reminds the monastics that their practice is not just an individual matter, but a concern of the entire community. They're indebted to others for the right and the opportunity to practice and should do their best to practice diligently as a way of repaying that debt. What I liked about this whole description is I kind of thought that for each one of us, in a parallel way, it's our situation in communal living. We each contribute materially to the welfare of the group. We aren't monastics, but we each contribute our practice to the group, making the Dharma available, often indirectly, in our words and our actions. And this is a noble exchange. So how do we make the Dharma available to people with whom we live? Let me count some ways, all from my own experience. By listening patiently when we're bored or want to do something else. By really caring about another person's experience. By speaking truthfully in ways that are useful, kind, and appropriate by offering to help with activities or tasks according to our means, that is, our time and our energy and our skills. By recognizing our aversions, maybe resentments or negative judgments, and taking full responsibility for them rather than blaming another person or a situation. By entering each conversation as new, without baggage by giving another person the benefit of the doubt, by not harming or by making amends if we do, by being attentive to what is good for the group as well as what is good for ourselves, by appreciating rather than judging, by being friendly to every group member, by accepting help graciously when we need it so that others experience the benefits of their being generous. Well, these are 12 ways. And you undoubtedly have your own ways to practice the Dharma and offer that to other people from your own practice. And in addition to offering the Dharma, we prepare meals and clean the house and buy things for the group and we fix things that are broken and we entertain guests. And we contribute our practice and we're lay people supporting those with whom they live. I feel like I've been talking nonstop and reading everything and I'm finished and I'm glad because a question we might want to share is what comes up for you in your practice regarding communal living?
Does anyone here live with anyone else? <laughs> is there anything regarding the Dharma and the Sangha that is relevant to your experience that you would be comfortable sharing? We're gonna have to, if you don't mind, we'll ask you to wait for the microphone because, as you know, the, the talks are recorded and it helps people. Sometimes I wish I had like some recording device that was recording everything that I said and did and, and um, uh, thought and th so that I could give it to somebody who was very objective and wise and they could tell me what was wrong with me. Oh, um, and that's impossible. But it strikes me that living in a community with other people that are following a spiritual path is must be pretty close to that, and is is would be a wonderful source of sort of wisdom about yourself. Mm -hmm. I guess I don't have a question, but that's that's what I was thinking about. Thank, Thank you, you for that, that concept and, and that experience. Um, I think each of us can think of times where we've been criticized and then how do we respond to that? And I'm also interested, you thought you'd like to record everything you say and do and bring it to a wise teacher who could tell you what's wrong with you. How about what's right about that? So for our own selves also, to appreciate what we do, to recognize when we're open and kind, and in fact, we hope that people we're with give us that feedback. You know, we have friends, and friends like us. What? Why do friends like us? You know, and so we can take that information in as well. So if we find ourselves irritating somebody, and they don't have to say to us specifically, I'm really irritated by what you just said, we can tell. And we can take that in, and we can reflect on it. I learn almost everything a few days later. And that's not a bad way to learn because when it happens so fast, it's hard to keep up with it. So I appreciate that. Getting feedback from others is an important part of our practice. And we want to take in what we think is bad news and we want to take in what we think is good news. And we want to have open hearts to the people we're with. Thank you so much. Interesting talk. Um, there is one thing that uh, you said in your list of 12 at the end um, that really struck me as something I don't do. <laughs> so um, that was start every conversation is new. I think that when, um, like, as you said that, I just keep thinking about many people and conversations that um, I'm bringing all this baggage from things that were said in the past to the present conversation. And I'm not, um, it's definitely not new. Um, and I think it's kind of, you know, a source of baggage for me to not be able to 
see the person as they are right now. And I keep thinking about all the things they said I didn't like before. <laughs> um, so I'm going to have to try that. I have to remember. Start every conversation is new. Thank you. Have you even had the experience in community if you're together for a long time and you have a big meeting? We don't exactly take bets, but we predict what each person's going to say sometimes. <laughs> and most of the time we're right. <laughs> and it's really a practice to come fresh to it. And uh, we do have our memories, but we don't have to put people in a box and close the top and put packing tape all around the top of it and never let them out. And uh, whether or not they do the same thing is their business. And if we can open our hearts to them and, and be spacious for them, that's our practice. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, I think it's, it's especially difficult with family because there is so much history right. of just kind of not thinking as you're seeing that person, you know, just now and just listening now, just like you have all those past conversations and interactions. That's right. Um, so I try. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sounds good to me. What else? Um, thank you for the talk. It was very uh, interesting about community. I've been thinking a lot about of it about it lately. I have a very ch hard time with community at work and being able to apply a lot of these teachings. Where I find that I have an easier time is with um, the children in my life, so the community of friends um, and neighbors. And so I, I consciously give time and attention to interactions with children and, and, and finding yeah. that much easier to sort of bring those, um, I guess, appreciation of, of the individual and the child and celebrating the individual. Um, it's much harder for, <laughs> with me to do that with adults or if I'm frustrated in cer certain situations. So just something to share. Sounds good. A couple of things come to mind when we're interacting with children. Children change. And if they change gradually enough, maybe we can accept it and keep up with it. But there are probably some changes that we kind of wish they wouldn't do for a little while, you know. My mom used to say, oh, it's a phase they're going through, you know, of my older brothers. And she was kind of philosophical about it, but I don't think it was always easy for her. And yet when we have a work situation or in my situation, uh, we don't choose the adults that we're with a whole lot. And um, as individuals, we might choose a group. I certainly chose the Sister of Mercy as a group. Um, but there's another dynamic there. At work, there might also be a dynamic of competition. And uh, that could enter in. So just being aware of the dynamics and being as open as we can and keeping to our own values of how we want to be with people is an important part of our practice. And then when we blow it, saying, oops, and uh, maybe talking to a friend about it and then seeing it differently the next time is a really supportive way to go along together.
Thank you for the talk. Uh, as you were talking, I was thinking about my living arrangement, which is uh, I have a roommate for the past year or so. And one of the things I struggle with is um, I think we have very different styles. Uh, I think we would probably be quite opposite on the Enneagram or whatever it's called. Um, we have had some conflicts arise over the course of us being roommates and then our approach to dealing with conflict is, is very different and I'm the type of person that wants to kind of address it head on or confront it or talk about it and my roommate is I think really shies away from that and um, and then the, we have situations where you know we just don't have contact for long periods of time and he just mm -hmm. kind of keeps to himself and we don't really interact or speak even though we we live in the same two-bedroom apartment and um, I'm wondering if maybe and and partly I wonder if you know there's some cultural issues as well um, you know I don't I don't want to make assumptions or whatever but I, I feel like um, well he, he's Korean and and I, I think maybe I've thought about how that factors into it um, but anyway I just wanted to hear your hear your thoughts about dealing with those kind of situations where you have really different styles of addressing conflict and especially when you know one person really shies away and kind of closes closes down and the other person wants to address that conflict mm -hmm. thank you thanks for that example I remember uh, Gil talking about when he lived in Japan the cultural difference was huge that sometimes Westerners, we are very individualistic. And the Japanese people were very communal-minded. And um, he really remarked about seeing that in himself and, and changing with that. One of the people um, who works in our community is Korean as well. And often, like, he'll come to lunch and he doesn't talk at lunch. And that's very Korean. And then sometimes he does. And it's important to really go back and, again, not say all Asians are one way, all Latinos are another way. Um, I live with several Latinos, and we now in our dining room have a large altar for Day of the Dead. That's not something I grew up with in San Francisco, you know, in a white um, community. And so culture is part of it. And I'm really hearing it can be very difficult, like if people stop talking to each other because we have different ways of looking at conflict. That's really hard. And uh, I guess all we can do is our best and allow space for the other person and just to remember this other person had a very different early childhood, has a very different culture, as an adult has made different choices. Okay. And uh, Try not to get hooked by something that is someone else's, but just to be as open as we can be. It sounds very difficult sometimes. I even have in, in my family two different uh, sets of siblings and nieces and nephews who don't speak to one another. It drives me crazy. What is your problem? You know? <laughs> and uh, I have nothing to say about it. And they haven't talked to me about it. And it's a, um, it's a burden and something that I hope they'll be able to work out. And that one isn't even cultural. <laughs> yeah. 
Thank you. Thank you. Okay, well, I want to thank you for your practice. When we were sitting tonight, I was, I was breathing in your presence and breathing out appreciation. And so thank you so much for your practice.